You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Did you watch the debates? God, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I cannot deal with that. Not right now. I was in the bad place because my parents were watching it on the living room TV in Vietnamese because there was live translation and like live dubbing, like Vietnamese dubbing of uh, their voices. And my niece, my nephew were watching in the dining room in English. So it was just... Why didn't you put headphones and just go somewhere else? <laughs> does he sound Does he sound less horrible in Vietnamese? Uh, yeah. Because his voice, his actual voice is just like, it just gives me like a migraine. It's terrible. It's Do terrible. Do they try to match like someone who sounds like him? No, no. It was just one guy translating all three of them. Him, Biden, and, and Wallace. Chris Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> And he just got so frustrated and was like, guys, I'm sorry, I can't translate right now because they keep interrupting each other. Well, yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. Like, why are they letting a bunch of old white men decide everyone's future? Why did they not let a woman moderate? I feel like any woman who's not Megyn Kelly could shut Trump down. Really quickly. Yeah, get a black woman to yell at him. Get that professor from that town hall yes. from a few weeks ago, remember, who was like, Stop, sir. I'm going to fucking ask my question. And you're going to shut up, you motherfucker. Because, like, that motherfucker needs to shut up. Someone needs to tell him to shut up. Yeah. Uh, Biden did tell him to shut up. Didn't he call him a motherfucker, though? Because someone needs to tell him that. He called him a clown. Uh, that's very bold for Biden, I guess. I know. He, he, I think he fought well. Especially cause, because he has a stutter, and it's really hard to... I mean, he's also smart, and he also has a brain. It's just, like, so ridiculous yeah. that... I, I don't I don't even know. Let's just do this. Otherwise, my, my hair is just going to turn gray. Hi, this is Deep Tran. I'm Jose Solis. And we're your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that I figured out how to live cast from my iPad to a big screen TV... And I'm very proud of myself because then I got to watch theater on an actual TV. Without an Apple TV? Yeah. That sounds fancy. I recommend getting an Apple TV. Oh, I mean, I have one. Yeah. Do you know how to do that? How to send stuff from my computer or my phone or my iPad to the Apple TV? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I watch. That's how I've been watching all my stuff. I thought you meant without an Apple TV. Oh, no, with an Apple TV. Sorry, my parents have an Apple TV. I don't have an Apple TV because I don't really watch TV in my house. I have an old one. Do you want want it? Like, it's just, like, in my drawer. Really? You'll give me an Apple TV? I mean, yeah, if you want it. Like, I have an old one. I bought a new one. So if you want it, like, we can arrange that after. 
Great. I'll make you cookies. Okay, no worry. I mean, you're like in California for a month. And what did we watch this week that we had to cast on a giant TV, Jose? Well, actually, only one of the shows we had to uh, cast on an Apple TV or something. It was Romantics Anonymous by Nihai Productions uh, at the Old Vic. And the other show, we actually had to see and experience in a little cardboard box. And that was Portaleza uh, from La Jolla Playhouse. And we also have an interview for you this week with two people. Uh, Jose organized this because, in case you don't know, it is Latinx Heritage Month. Hispanic Heritage Month, but Latinx sounds better. Vivan los tacos and vivan los Latinos and viva, I don't know, Latino America. Yay, everyone. <laughs> I mean, you're in California. That's yeah. like the land of Hispanic heritage in the U.S., right? Oh, yes. We have the best tacos. Don't come for me, Texas. I mean, Texas... It's yeah. true. I mean, yeah, they can't. And Texas also always votes Republican, so they cannot come for you in more than one way. And to celebrate that, we are going to talk, well, we actually talked to two of the most prominent Latinx playwrights working right now. Alexis Shear, who you know from our dear dead drug lord, and Luis Alfaro, who you know recently from Mojada, but he does a lot of Greek adaptations. Like his Electricidad was really, really, really wonderful. And it's also an intergenerational conversation because Luis Alfaro is a, like a Latinx Chicano playwriting legend. He's been around for years and like knows about the struggle for representation. And Alexis, she just came out with her breakout play and it ran in New York for three months, which that never happens for women of color. So let's get started with Portaleza by David Israel Reynoso or David Israel Reynoso and Optica Moderna. It's a show, well, it's more of an experience. It's being produced by the Hoya Playhouse, who I think are, you know, out of all like the pandemic theater companies, the Hoya are doing extraordinary work, like extraordinary. Like I want to talk about all their shows. Like I even saw their kids show about wizards and even that was fun. But anyway, Portaleza is an experience. Like you actually get a thing in the mail. Like you get an envelope with some instructions and some really cool, like beautifully designed gadgets that you have to put together. And once you put together that, it's uh, a viewer kind of thing. It's, it's so hard to like try to like describe this show without giving, you know, I don't even know what I'm saying right now. The purpose of the show is that you're supposed to send a message to someone who's no longer here. And then using your phone and using the gadgets that they sent you, you are able to make that message reach the heavens or reach, you know, wherever it is that the message is supposed to go. And then you get feedback from it. So it's a show that really requires you to be very present because you have to do a lot of things, right? It's a lot of work that the show demands from you. I mean, not like coal mining or like doing anything like really difficult, but you have to put things together. Then you have to text and you have to email an experience that you cannot be, although you'll need your phone, you can't be on your phone, like doing something else. Like you cannot be like on hinge or, or grinder, or watching YouTube videos, right? I'm going to say something that sounds really bitchy, but I will explain myself. It was kind <laughs> of the same way I felt about watching Romantics Anonymous, which was the process of getting ready and anticipating the event was much more interesting than the actual event. Oh, really? You felt that about, I mean, with Romantics, I kind of agree, but you felt the same thing about Portaleza? <laughs> 
I just felt like I was watching a 20-minute music video, but through a kaleidoscope, so the colors are really cool. But then, yeah, but then, I mean, the colors were really cool, and, like, they had that really fancy, like, aluminum foil kind of thing that makes you feel, you know, what I love about this and the kaleidoscope kind of thing is that I miss going to the movies so much, and the idea of being sitting somewhere in the dark and watching something, uh like that uh, Portaleza reminded me of that you know I felt isolated my, my favorite times to go to the movies is like super early in the morning when there's almost no one there and I'll like pick a movie that I know no one else wants to go see because <laughs> I'm like European flick and I'll go see it at the AMC on 42nd Street and I know there's gonna be no one there because like who wants to go see like a fucking Belgian movie at 10 in the morning on a Tuesday right Jose yeah. does so I get to experience it alone and that's what Portaleza felt like to me. Like, I felt, you know, even though, like, I was looking at my phone through, like, a little, like, cardboard visor, the screen felt huge to me. It felt very immersive. I kind of felt like it was an IMAX experience almost. You didn't feel that, like, at all? I did. I, I liked the creation of it, like, the way it was presented. I just didn't find the videos themselves to be that illuminating. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Like, one of the, my favorite things to experience right now is to see how creative people have to get, given that mm -hmm. it's a pandemic. The thing I most liked about this experience was just the, like I was saying, the build up to it, because there was some, you had to, like, send in a question that you had to ask of the person who was no longer here. So I sent a question to my grandmother who died 10 years ago. In actually this room that I'm sitting in right now, I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the room where she died, and I sent in a question asking her like, "What happens after you die?" And I had to send that in, and then they sent me a text back saying like they received it. And so that interactive element, kind of like when we went to the murder mystery experience, like I've, I'm really enjoying these interactions we're having with artists. But I felt like when it came time to have the actual experience with the viewfinder, I found myself missing all the buildup. Like underwhelmed. Yes, I was, I was very underwhelmed. It was a good music video, though. Yeah, it was really good. It was but, beautiful. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I was so excited about seeing the end. Like, I'm a sucker for anything that's, you know, art involving, like, spiritual experiences and all that. Mm -hmm. Like, give that to me. That's my catnip. Uh, and yeah, I know. <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed that part. I agree with you. Like the video, I had fun with it. I guess it was not that memorable. Although the part where there's like kids was really cute, and also the part where there's like women floating, like in the you know in the universe or whatever, that was also kind of cute. But then like I feel like that picks up again when we actually get the message, right? When we actually get an answer, yeah. And then when when we have to open the little envelope and all that stuff. That show won me over in that part because there's something else that you have to do after the music video, which also, like, it makes me think The Matrix totally, like, ruined the idea of, like, spiritual sci-fi forever, right? Because, like, it felt very Matrix-inspired. And I'm like, come on, filmmakers, give us something that's not, like, green things falling and, like, you know, like, electro music or whatever. Give us a new idea of what, a, I don't know, like, a digital heaven might look like. Yeah, it, it was a lot of mixed iconography, and I don't really know how I felt about it. Like, it started off very technical, like The Matrix, and then it, and then it went to a very... Enya place? Then it went into space. Yeah, then it went to space, then it went to the Enya place. <laughs> None of which were the good place for you, apparently. 
Space was the good place for me. I could have stayed there the entire time. Yeah, space was incredible. Like, yeah, I totally could have. Yeah, maybe, like, it means that we um, should we join the president's space force. <laughs> yes. If the aliens come right now, I will go with that. Yes, please take us. Although, like, if you're an alien, why would you want to take a human being seeing what we've done to our planet? I'd be like, nope. All of you are staying out here. We don't need you in Jupiter. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's why they haven't come, because we know they're out there. I saw that video of that spaceship that NASA leaked. It was very official. Oh, the one with so the jets? So real. Yeah. yeah. We're too low for them. You know, like, we're ants compared to like, They don't care. Or they, like, flew by, and they looked at what we were doing. They were like, go by. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, I, I don't know her. Yeah. <laughs> So if there's an alien listening to us who wants to be like, get in, loser, we're going shopping, please come take us. Do you have any other thoughts? Uh, no, not really. I really enjoyed the, the process of it. Like, I love the art. I'm with you on the video part, but I did love it. It was a really beautiful experience overall for me because it got me away from screens by also making me look at a screen. And I don't know, I was just very excited. Like, it made me think about how beautiful it is to get postcards. Have you been getting postcards from people? Not the voting postcards. Yeah, I've been getting postcards and uh, letters from people. Right. Yeah, It's kind of like that, right? Like reclaiming getting something from someone in the mail. Except in this case, it's a message from our dead grandmas. Because I also did my grandma. Aww. Does she also live a really long time? Uh, I, I mean, I don't think any grandma lives enough of a time for their grandkids. Like, But yes, she had a really good life. That's why I picked my grandma, because I really wish like she was alive when I became an actual adult and could appreciate her. I, yeah. It, it just made me wistful. But what I really like about Port and what La Jolla Playhouse is doing is they're taking something that they have been doing, which is immersive, you know, experiences. Usually they do it outdoors, and they're figuring out a way to bring it to people's homes. Like, we literally got a package in the mail with these instructions and it felt very personal so i really appreciate them trying to figure out how to create a personal experience when we're all stuck in our homes yeah and the vice is pretty cute the art is very cute it's kind of like guillermo del toro inspired yeah i'm keeping it maybe you could like put make that into your ouija board it's very uh it's very <laughs> mythical i don't want any ghosts in my apartment so Talk to your grandma. No, I don't want to talk to her. She ghosts. misses you. Well, yes, but she can send me <laughs> messages to Port Celeste. Like, I love many people who are no longer here, but as much as I love all of you, I don't want you to show up in my house, okay? Thank you. All right. So if you want to talk to your dead grandma, uh, you can still experience Port Elisa. Uh, go to lahoyaplayhouse.org, and tickets are available until October 31st. And you can do it whenever you want. Yes. Okay, uh, the next show we're going to talk about is from Nehigh Theater Company, their newest show called Romantics Anonymous. It was streamed live from the Old Vic in London. Uh, Nehigh is a British theater company. Uh, they've, they've done works in the States before, though. Uh, they did Brief Encounter, and their stuff has toured like around the world and to the U.S. Like I've seen three of their shows in, in America, I've always really enjoyed them. They're very whimsical and a lot of and a lot of music, very optimistic shows. Like, like you can take your family to it, and you'll have a good time. Which is what I kind of, kind of got from 
this newest show they did, which is called Romantics Anonymous, which is based on a 2010 French film about two socially awkward, uh, maybe mentally ill chocolatiers who fall in love and have to figure out how to deal with that. And what I really, I really appreciate is the Brits showing us Americans how to do theater right now because this was a full production. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure they isolated the actors and the crew, and they just performed for, like, three cameras, and there was just physical contact. And it felt like, you know, watching a Met Live broadcast or watching a National Theater Live broadcast. And somehow, Britain has figured out how to do this, and we have not. And it just, even if the show was not that good, which it was not, <laughs> I, it just made me really miss the live experience and watching it on a gigantic screen in my parents' living room, I felt like I was back in the theater, and that was really nice. Especially because there was technical snafus, and so we started an hour an hour late. And it was really enjoyable because the director kept looking at us the entire time saying, hey, sorry, you know, live theater, what can you do? Which was so endearing. Yes. Like, I missed... I miss the snafus. Like, I miss the fuck-ups. Yes. I love the part. I mean, I'm sorry to the Nihai people because, yeah, like, the show itself was, like, all right. I mean, also, like, I want them to do Brief Encounter then if they're if they're doing mm. this instead. But anyway, it was so cool because, like, when things started going south and they had to stop their show, they were like, sorry, there's, like, some tech issues. And there was, like, a siren outside and it reminded me of times. And I'm sorry that I sound so excited about this. I felt like a fucking sociopath. But it reminded me of this one time when I was at Tuck Everlasting and they had to stop the show because someone fainted. So, like, the ambulance arrived and all of that. And that was so exciting. I mean, the person survived, so I'm not, like, making light of someone who died or something like that. But it was that. It was, like, it was so cool. You know, like, it felt like being alive. It felt like seeing something that was happening in front of you. And then they paused it. And, like, you know, for me, I was more excited to see how the actors were, like, in the background, like, what do we do? And they're like, go, because we have to stop everything. And then when the actors came back and resumed their positions to restart the show, those moments for me were more exciting than anything else in the show. Do you think our standards have decreased because we've been stuck inside? I don't think so. But also, I mean, in our defense, this show was kind of like, you know, Chocolat meets Amelie meets Ratatouille. The movie itself is not that great either. So, like, you know, like, maybe just find better movies to adapt into musicals. Uh, it was very twee. It was very predictable. So, you know, the acting was fantastic, though, and all of that. But the music itself was just like, do you remember a single song from it? No, the music felt very incidental and very unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. You know, it was very, like, I just remember, like, there was, like, a recurring theme that they kept using and then going back to it. And maybe we're just becoming, like, more jaded or cynical, which I don't think we were before, but maybe that's what we're becoming in quarantine. Because I noticed, like, a lot of people on social media were, like, head over heels about the show. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> and I was like, huh? I'm like, I usually love romantic musicals, and stuff, but I was so bored by the music in this. Yeah. Hey, I'm single right now. Like, I could use some romance and magic in my life, and this just didn't do it for me. And I think it was because I thought she was too good for him, and she was trying too hard. And that offended my feminist sensibilities 
And I am okay with that. But isn't that always the case? Like, the female protagonist is always too good for the man. Always. (laughs) But he's always, like, really good looking or or charming. As an audience member, like, you get it. You don't like Richard Gere. But you'd still go into the hotel room, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I remember when the actor in the show showed up. Because remember, he played, like, multiple characters, right? Uh, and I was like, he has, I thought he had big dick energy, so I'll go with that. Oh, okay. Well, I guess he's more your type than my type. Also, quarantine, maybe my standards have lowered when it comes to men. <laughs> <laughs> Not theater. It's made mine higher than ever because I don't want to touch anybody. <laughs> I mean, that's relatable. Like, they don't want to touch each other. I don't want to touch other people. Like, that feels like a quarantine romance. Oh, my God, totally. For you as someone who has struggled with his mental health, how did you feel about how this piece portrayed mental health? Because I felt like it portrayed it as something like whimsical and adorable. Well, that's the way that mental health is usually portrayed. There's nothing whimsical or adorable about anxiety or depression. So don't listen to the show. It was very like Amelie. You know, like if you, if you look back, do you like Amelie? I, I, I enjoy Amelie. Yeah. Right. But I enjoy it despite the fact that it's problematic. It is very problematic in terms of, like, she clearly has some sort of, like, you know, something, right? Mm-hmm. And the movie treats it at this, like, lovely... It's also, like, a very... Of its time. Quark. Yeah. It treats it at this, like, manic... What's, what's the term? I always forget. Manic pixie uh, dream girl kind of thing, where it's mm-hmm. like, no, like, clearly there's something wrong with her. I mean, not wrong in, like, a bad way, but, you know, like, she has... She must have some condition, right? Some sort of illness, some sort of mental illness, some sort of mental disorder. Because she's, she's like a freaking stalker. Yeah, she's a stalker and she's socially awkward. But also, like, she has, like, severe anxiety. So, like, yeah, there's... Yeah. Believe me, there's nothing cute, there's nothing sweet or nothing whimsical about anxiety. So, I don't know. I wish art would stop treating mental issues. Like, there's some, like, cute thing that you can overcome when the right man with big dick energy shows up. That's not how it happens uh, do you think it's a french thing since it was ba- romantic phenomenon and anomaly both french films well i mean the pa- manic pi- pixie dream girl thing is like also maybe that's where the americans stole it from because it feels very french even i don't know like did you ever watch that little voice movie that british movie with ewan mcgregor like no. it's always you know always like the shy female protagonist with some sort of like secret or some sort of thing always becomes the object of someone else's affection. It's like this, I don't know, it's this like really strange combination of like fetishizing and romanticizing uh, mental illness with also marrying that with like the need men have to like, well, allegedly, men have to want to protect and to save women. So it's this like very gross savior complex meets social anxiety, which in fact would make you think that this male protagonists are fucking perverts because like leave the women with the mental illness alone right yeah like don't use them in order to get laid yes that's like no that's like very very wrong don't do it so i kind of i mean this show also does that right yeah but a woman created it so that's the most interesting thing about it i think maybe it's sometimes like Sometimes when you grow up with these kind of stories and these kind of romantic tropes, like you can't help but feel sentimental about them. And this is like a very sentimental romantic piece that I don't really think 
thinks that it's about mental illness. I think it's just, I think the piece thinks it's just about like regular people who, who have social anxiety, which isn't a real mental illness in the world of this piece. I wonder if we would have enjoyed the show more if Nihai had sent us chocolate, like Portalesa. <laughs> Here's a yeah. box of chocolates. <laughs> How's that for an immersive experience? Yeah, I guess I mean, like, everything's improved by chocolate. Like, I feel like having chocolate has made me forgive some really shitty shows. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Or whenever there's food involved for me, really. (laughs) Like, Oklahoma, like, I was one over. Not by the chili, but that helped. (laughs) The free food helped. Yeah. I'm looking forward to like more of these live broadcasts, especially because it was only $26 to stream it. And Jose and I are also going to be watching a live broadcast of six, the musical soon. And that was only $15. And if after quarantine, we can all figure out how to do this in America, like there's this money that you all are just leaving on the table and access that the technology is already there. Like, why? Why was... Why? 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 Why has this not been done here? Because they probably why? are thinking about the idea that they had to sell individual tickets, which is kind of what, like, Disney did, you know, try to, like, overcome... Fucking capitalism, man. Uh, but Disney kind of wanted to overcome by charging, like, extra money for Mulan instead of just, like, giving it for, to the people who already had Disney+, Plus because they're trying to sell tickets. And I was going to ask you that. I mean, I lived by myself, and I was completely alone, when I was watching Romantics Anonymous, like, did you, did anyone in, in your uh, parents' house in California join you? Yeah, yeah, but my dad joined me for a little bit. And then he was like, fuck and, this, uh, this is boring. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what he said. <laughs> Go dad. Um, but yeah, you know, like, you said $26, so technically, if you're, like, being, like, a capitalist and, like, a producer and stuff, probably producers on Broadway are thinking, like, how are you going to let two people watch a show for 26 bucks and that kind of mentality is what has american theater right now you know not trying to do this thing about live performance because they don't think they don't want to give people joy they just want to sell as many tickets as possible which is bullshit we've been talking about on the show like the american theater is a capitalistic structure but it thinks it's socialist and they think it's humanist lol Do they really think that? Yeah. Like, the amount of people, Broadway producers especially, who have, who I've heard say, I don't do it for the money. I do it because I love theater. And I think there's something magical about bringing people in a room together. Okay. L-O-L to the, I don't know. I don't know math. But what's the, the tiny number that you can put and it multiplies it? Square? Yeah. Yeah. LOL. I don't know what that means. Like, LOL times a lot is basically what I want to say. L-O-fucking-L. Mm-hmm. To the nth degree, you yes. know? Yes. Yes. Well, from some news I got, we're not going back until next September at least, so people got to figure it out. But the Brits, you know, I'm, I'm going to be continue to keep my eye on that overseas programming. Because if you want to see people kissing right now on stage, that's... That's where that's where you Oh my go. god, that's true. That was so cute. And I also like your favorite, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean he's not your favorite, but he might bring back your favorite show, Phantom. Yes. Did you hear about the drive in theater in 
my neighborhood in Queens that I'm missing right now because I'm in California, but they're doing like a drive-in screening of Phantom of the Opera with live performances. But no one has cars. No one I know has a freaking car. So that's like also bullshit. <laughs> it's New York. Like they should, you know, like I was wondering the other day, like, can I lift to like a drive-in? Like, can lift give us like discounts if we're going to sit for a show or something like that? Because I don't have a car. You don't have a car. Like no one I know has a car. Who's going to drive us to these places? Someone needs needs to, like, figure out, like, individual bubble or tent situation. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Or I'll just have to build, like, what's that thing that kids do? Like, boxcars? Yeah. But, so, I recently went to the beach before I left for California. I went to the beach, and I ordered a $30 beach tent off of Amazon. So, it protected me and my friend from the sun and from other people. Oh, that's awesome. And you can peer through the little windows, right? Exact. Any other thoughts before we get to our guests? Now I want chocolate, so let's get to our guests. Next up, we talk to Alexis Shear and Luis Alfaro, two of the most prominent Latinx playwrights working in theater right now. And like Deep said earlier, it was a multi-generation spanning thing of beauty. And I had a fabulous time, and I hope all of you enjoy it. So let's go check out the interview. Alexis Shear and Luis Alfaro, thank you so much for joining us, and bienvenidos. Bienvenidos, hello. Gracias. <laughs> I'm so thrilled because I really wanted to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month with the two of you because you are in many ways, you know, I don't want, you know, I don't even know how to like start talking about it because it's like you represent generations of Latinx people in the United States who have been doing art, who have been creating art. And I just love the two of you so much and your work that I was like, I can't imagine like a better duo to have to celebrate what makes being Latinx special and so incredible. So can I start with that as a question? Like, what is, can you, can you brag about why is it so amazing to be Latinx? We have good food. <laughs> I'll start there. I feel like I keep writing food into all of my plays just to have food around the theater. And if I like trick everyone, like, oh, there are empanadas in this play, then we have to have empanadas in the rehearsal hall. So um, <laughs> we have good food. I'll start there. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I guess I was thinking a little bit different. I was thinking we're, we're, we have outsider status, right? We have good history. We have good, hard history. And in a way, when you're a pl playwright or a writer or an artist, You are always pushing up against something. And as a Chicano, you know, I always feel like, wow, I've been pushing up against something for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And, um, and it's our history, right? It's um, a kind of internalized history, but also our, our real history that exists in this country. So there's something joyful also about not, not being in the center right now, because the center is like corroded and, and uh, poisonous. You know, so you're always kind of pushing against something. And that feels right for a playwright. I like the, the tension that I'm in right now. Well, I mean, first of all, I just wanted to congratulate the two of you for the amazing receptions to both of your plays before we all got shut down. Like Alexis, for how long our Dear Dead Drug Lord ran. I don't think any of us thought that a play about a bunch of teenage girls and yeah. Pablo Escobar would. We knew that it would do that. 
And Luis, Mojada played all around the country, and you continue to just reinvent what makes classics timeless. And I feel so blessed to like be able to cover the field while the two of you are in it. Like, how much do, do, do you know of each other's work? Because I just, I feel like Latinx playwrights don't get enough credit for how creative the diaspora is with the form and how inventive it is. I think it's seven years ago, maybe even longer now. I'm thinking about the Latino theater commons and how that started, right? And, um, and then meeting Alexis at her play, right? It was like right after your play, you went up on stage for that yeah. conversation. And it was so intense because you generally, you know, don't meet the family that way. But it was really exciting to hear her play. And then the artist, you know, shows up and there's a conversation. And it was so beautiful. So I would say, you know, um, we are, we're not that small of a community, but we, we live like one. I think we, we, we know so many people in common. And also we, we know what the community, where it's at. Do you feel that way, Alexis? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I got to see um, Mojada when um, I was at an Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And and so, you know, and then getting to meet you in, in real life was like, oh, great. One of the veterans. Um, and and I do feel like it's, it's big and it's small. And, and so we all kind of know each other. And I feel like we're all responding to kind of our ancestors and the people who could like I respond to Fornes and her work and and I feel like a lot of us you know we're all kind of stacked on each other's shoulders and building on top of each other's legacies yeah definitely and you know it's Fornes and Valdez in a way right Valdez on the west coast and then Fornes on the east coast Fornes was my mentor and so I am uh, deeply deeply immersed in a community that's also feels very much about Irene, you know? And so uh, I would say that that's really been very powerful because on the West Coast, sometimes there's a kind of aesthetic that um, that is very traditional. And then you come to the East Coast and you see something very different. But, you know, I think about this a lot in terms of every community. These last few years, I wrote a little, I write Facebook notes, like a thousand word Facebook entries, you know? And one of them was about Asian American women this generation of playwrights and how it's not really recognized as a movement. Like who has, it hasn't been like really, really illuminated, illustrated. And it kills me because within that community, you see the variances of writing. Right. And so I'm thinking right now, as I'm looking at Alexis, this beautiful face, I'm thinking like the writing is so different. We're writing differently, but our sensibilities are very, very much in line, maybe with our politics, but also with our, um, I don't even know what the word is, our, our taste, you know, or our regional, because you're very, very much of your region, don't you think, Alexis? I mean, I kind of feel the Boston in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's so funny. I've been in Boston the last 10 years, but I always claim Miami as my home because I was born and raised there. And, um, and I'm finding that, you know, the Latinx diaspora is huge and everyone comes from a different place and uh, Latin people aren't a monolith and there's so much culture and, and differences in culture and language. And, and when you talk about Latinx theater, you actually talk about a lot of different um, backgrounds, nationalities, um, politics. I mean, I, my mom is Colombian, so 
I feel like Pablo Escobar is a part of my family mythology, weirdly. And so that's a thing that I have to like deal with in my work. Um, but I was raised in Miami amongst uh, Cuban exiles. So, and I saw a lot of that theater. So I feel very in tune to that experience. And, and then I go to the theater and I learn about, you know, Mexican culture and, and the Chicano culture. So I love that it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's not one thing. Um, it's a, just a rich diaspora. There's something very powerful in how we keep uh, shifting and changing, you know? And I'm thinking a lot lately because of our pandemic about maybe the only thing we, we really can count on is change and how we change. And, uh, and change is essential. And it's uh, maybe, I don't know if you're all feeling this, but I'm feeling like I'm making art and I also have to make politic, right? I have to change the community I'm in. And this is the moment. A little fissure has happened, right? And how do I, how do I take advantage of that moment to change something because I don't think it'll come again for a long time. And I've been asking myself questions. Um, you know, we always ask like, oh, why this play? Why now? And and now I feel like I'm asking, like I'm working on this like micro commission um, that we're aiming towards launching in January around Inauguration Day. And I'm a, the question I'm asking myself now is what do we need? What are we going to need? And trying to anticipate our, our sensitivities um, and in trying to imagine like all sorts of scenarios and, and, and trying to create like, okay, what, like really fundamentally, what is my purpose as an artist and, and what can theater do, especially like in new media like this, um, that there's something a lot richer and a lot, I feel like higher reaching than just like, we're telling a story. It's like, Oh no, we're, we're acting, we're trying to enact change. Um, and, and harness power. I don't know. I'm all, that's the, the witchcraft, the brumidia. <laughs> I'm like, just trying to like cast, have everyone cast a big spell. Um, there's performance in that, which is why, I, I mean, I love all of that and kind of the, the marriage of spirituality with performance, I feel like is a big thing in my work. I want to talk about that so much because like, I do think of the two of you as the ultimate, you know, brujos and brujas. And I mean that, you know, as, as a total compliment, because, you know, even though your work is in terms of style and what you're doing is very different, what I love about your work so much is that you are reclaiming brujas. And in many ways, I get, you know, for every theater company that does the Crucible somewhere, they need to be doing one of your plays also, because your work is the opposite of the Crucible, where you're reclaiming brujeria, as women dancing with the devil, and in this case, the devil being knowledge, and the devil being women becoming women because they're using their gifts to be in contact with nature, to be in contact with human beings, and to be in contact with themselves. Mm-hmm. It is the opposite of the crucible. Like You don't fear that. Like You want your brujas to be dancing in the forest, to be dancing in the trees and to be levitating and to be using their power. So I would just love to hear both of you talk about brujas so much. It's what my necklace says. says (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll start by saying that Alexis, that last image in your play of the dance is so profound. It's so real and so uh, beautifully upsetting and exciting because it is a, a new form of like release, right? And I love the way it gets introduced. 
in the play and you see it form and then you see it full out, you know, mm-hmm. I just have to say that was, that was ritual. That was like church. You're calling on the spirits. Definitely. Even in a reading, right? It's such a profound moment to know that a play has to live in its physical life too. Mm-hmm. And that it gets, um, it gets animated by the body and it, it becomes a, a calling, right? A, a, a trance. I love the trance of it. Yeah, there's the act of conjuring, and, and I love thinking about theater and in terms of alchemy and the alchemy of live performance and, and how just the act of going to theater is ritual in itself. I love identifying it as a witch. It freaks people out. We should reclaim this because I think at the very root of it, it it's self-possession. What is witchcraft? It is the act of self-possession. It's about connecting to the inner divine, the goddess, um, which is always what I try and do in my work, but also just like in my life, because we live in a patriarchal society where um, thinking about the crucible, which, you know, guess who wrote it? I love the like one ingredient of theater that maybe doesn't really exist in a book is like the, the act of like, oh, we could actually make something. Like if we all came into it and believed like there's a, suspension of disbelief and we can all just like allow for something to be possible and allow like an impossible truth to Mm -hmm. be possible this is getting very heady (laughs) (laughs) but i i just i love magic and i love that in a theater we can just have some girls around a fire and and they can actually have power it feels tangible and it feels accessible in a way that it doesn't feel in real life that's beautiful. I was thinking as you were talking about, I did a play um, maybe about five years, six years ago with Campo Santo, one of my favorite companies in San Francisco, Sean San Jose. He's extraordinary. And I was raised in Pentecostal apostolic religion, very Alleluia church, right? And so I have a whole segment in there that's about 10 minutes of, of speaking in tongues. And if you've ever heard it, I mean, it's really like conjuring of a spirit, right? And your body does the drink. And he did like he really studied the Pentecostal religion and his research was he went up and down Highway 99 in the Central Valley of California and went to all these Pentecostal churches. So by the time he actually did the performance, there was a 10 minute, very uncomfortable moment of him being in the spirit. And, you know, the, the stage directions are, he's levitating, he's doing all this stuff. And, they, and there's some lady in the audience afterwards that says, he levitated, right? He levitated. He did, right? And I was like, yeah, he did. He didn't, or maybe he did, but I think the conjuring does that, right? And that's kind of one of the beautiful things about theater is if you believe that the magic can happen, it's going to happen, right? We have to believe we're making magic. We are bringing those elements into the room for sure. The reading I've done about when all these covens start to really make themselves like seen and known it is in these moments of political oppression and it's just a way of manifesting power um and showing your power we're definitely living in that right now so i love that word manifesting because in you know in mexico when i was in mexico city somebody said Vas a ir a la manifestación, right and i was like what of the manifestation well yes and that's uh, not what i thought it was going to be the manifestation is a political protest right mm. so nobody calls it the protest they call it the manifestacion and i thought wow this is so beautiful we're going to manifest something in the zocolo and we're going to make something happen and i love that that that, that language kind of lends itself to brujeria right wow, yeah. the spirits 
I feel like you were talking about artists as political activists, as citizens, before it became cool. Because prior to this moment that we're in, it seems like artists were seen primarily as just entertainers. Like you cannot be political. And during this moment for the two of you, since you can't do your art in the traditional way you have been doing it, like how have you been working on those two things, like being the artist and being a citizen? Well, I've never been busier politically, I have to say, you know, this summer. I know maybe most of you know that I was part of the Victory Gardens action, and it was a very painful, very painful process that we helped put together with a number of people, right? Really extraordinary people. But um, having our, our seven writers, the resident writers, all quit together was the beginning of really challenging the theater and really getting to the transparency they needed to do. And that was really hard. It was hard to leave. It was hard to then create actions and work with the board. And one of the things I'm so proud of is um, I'm working with a lot of theaters right now. It's one thing to call the theaters out. It's another thing to help them get right, right? Unless we want them to completely die. So one of the things I've been doing was the Victor Grinstein led me to CTG, Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, and Dominique Morceau and uh, Daniel Alexander-Jones and Culture Clash, and a few of us are part of what we're calling the Artist Collective. And we, they, they asked us to come in in this moment to help them, how do we organize again, right? And we said very clearly, it's not about the moment, it's about the future. We're going to help you figure out what you're going to be. Because this moment is already happening. It's already in process. But how do we help you move forward? So I teach in the academy, right? I'm at USC, an $8 billion school where only 2% of our tenured faculty are black and only 3% are Latino. So how do you make change happen from within and enforce it and do it nicely? and do it in a system that it almost it feels impossible to change, right? And this is the thing about being an artist. I think we're creative beings who use our minds in different ways. So every institution that I'm going to is figuring out how to creatively treat it like a collaboration, a community collaboration. I have to bring the people with me. So the first thing I did CTG was, I'm going to amplify a lot of emerging artists. Now we're like, oh, well, we're really, really interested in you. No, that's not the way I work. I come with the whole community. So are you cool about that? So I'm mentoring two uh, yeah, female dramaturgs, 19 and 20 years old. And then we have about 20 artists that we've done these little micro commissions with that are doing stuff for the website. So like in a way, you just start to open a door. And I'm just calling it Amplify. That's all I'm doing. Is there's just Amplify and there's Process. And so Process is trying to create transparency in that building. So I'm doing these interviews, right, like this, where I bring all the people on staff and I ask them very nicely about their jobs and about how they see the future. And then I kindly go into the numbers of people in the company that are BIPOC, which are Right, And then you start to really pick away at something, right? Amplify and process. I got to simplify it for them and for me, right? And for my community. And then I got to just keep pushing people through. And I think that's really been the the process for me. And, you know, I was arrested so much when I was young for civil disobedience. I was 16 arrests. Oh, my God. I, mean, I even have a felon for one. I can never run for president, right? I can't do anything of that. 
uh, yeah, how do you how do you make this more sophisticated? How do you strike and and be more effective? Right. So it's been a summer of making art, but also making politic in a way that's smarter. Right. And I'm really happy about that. How do we do that? Right. I hope CTG is paying you really well for that. CTG is pain. And that is like, you know, it's really great because part of it was, yeah, we're all broke because I'm lucky because I teach. So I took half my money immediately and just put it out into the community. But taking half your money and putting it out to the community is, is a great way of saying, listen, here's a $500 commission. I don't want the rights. I don't want it. I just want to let you know you're a great writer. Let's do it. And I did a year in the community in East L.A. with community writers, right? And um, we wrote plays. And I said, the deal is we got to write plays and we got to inundate our theaters with plays. We got to write good work. So, you know, if I could, I would do the foreigners thing. And, I, and I just haven't been able to find a place where somebody wants the foreigners thing to happen again, right, in that way. But I think it's eventual that that's what we have to do in the community is um, create the space for the writers to make the work and to demand something of the work, right, to be generous in our criticism, you know, and to think about, you know, that, that word that is so hard, quality, what is quality writing? What is the craft of writing? What is point of view? What is passion? Like, look at me. Ah! <laughs> it means something right now. This is the moment when it means something. You know, I, I feel like everybody has passion and everybody has point of view. But where's craft and technique? And how do we get that as a community? How are we sharing it with one another? So, you know, one of the joys of meeting Alexis was in a in a carnaval, a new works festival put together by the LTC. And that was an amazing experience because you could say, here are seven to 10 plays and then a whole list of other plays that are available to be produced, that should be produced, right? That demand to be seen, that speak to the moment we're in. Speaking about manifestaciones and community, Alexis, what you're doing with your, I call it the magical book club, I forget what the official name is, what the actual name is, sorry. But, you know, I was I was there when, you know, well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the book club? I was there on Thursday. And, but what you're doing is right now that people can't gather in, you know, at the theater, you're giving them a different kind of theater in a way because they're reading plays and people don't really read plays. And, like, yeah. you're inviting them to imagine, I think, and to conjure also. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, Speakeasy Stage is a, a company or regional company in Boston. So it's a play discussion club run like a book club. And they invited me to moderate a series on Latinx plays and basically gave me four weeks and said, what do you want to share with our community and, you know, your community? And so we started off with uh, Melinda Lopez's Sonia Flew. And last week we read Mojada and Luis got to join us. This week they're all reading Drug Lord, which will be really fun. <laughs> and uh, I feel like it's like when the book club turns on me. <laughs> but no, they've been like such a wonderful and generous and curious group. I, I'm so pleased with it. And then we close off the series with Eliana Pipes and her play Dreamhouse. But it's been, I got invited to do this and I'm like, do I know how to do this? I've never moderated a thing. This is like a talk back, but like we're all just reading a play and I'm not a playwright in mo on most weeks. But it's just been a blast just to talk about the language and the craft and what's actually on the page. And then all the playwrights have been able to join us and, you know, talk about what's like 
outside the margins of the page and, and everything that went into it. I've just had so much fun um, talking about plays. You know, back to what Louise was saying, too, about this moment of creating, but also, like, making change. First of all, I want to meet the dramaturgs that you're mentoring. I feel like there needs to be, like, a Tinder for dramaturgs and playwrights, because I just, I don't know how to meet them. How do you talk to them? What do you say? <laughs> do you send an emoji? <laughs> um, I just want to know more dramaturgs. Um, anyway, but, you know institutions and opening these doors, looking at the institutions I'm affiliated with and, and deciding like, okay, what's important to me? And as an alumni of Boston University, I'm working with my MFA program that I graduated from, which was a wonderful program that I feel like nobody knows about. It was fully funded by the university. And I just want to like kick the doors open. and I want everybody to know about this program. And I want the program itself to, you know, commit to, taking in people who who write plays that don't always fit I think what we have decided as a white society what a play is and and it's like when you're you're seeing all these submissions it's how do you allow for for variance in craft and form and kinds of storytelling and those have been have been really like fun doors to kick down so I've been doing that oh my god I, I want to hear more about kicking down doors formally because like I, I just wrote the story about this group that's trying to revamp the canon because you know what we consider the canon was dictated by a bunch of white men who loved other white men and this isn't like a give people advice question it's more like a a lot of playwrights I've talked to who are of color, they always have a struggle when they're trying something new and they're, they aren't readily embraced by, you know, the mainstream establishment of, you know, critics, artistic directors, producers, because they're not writing within like the formal systems that we are all taught is what is good playwriting. And I feel like that's why Maria Irene Fornes was never quite appreciated when she was still alive by the mainstream because of those restrictions. And now we're all, actually appreciating her the way she should be appreciated what are your thoughts on just like staying courageous and like going with your own instincts and ignoring like what other people are telling you what what constitutes a good play I love reading plays and I love reading kind of everything um not just plays and reading poetry and screenplays and I read a lot of nonfiction and I read a lot of comic books and I feel like all of that ends up in in my work um and I feel like reading makes me a stronger writer. You, you just have to keep writing and you have to hone your craft and you only do that by actually doing it. And, and so like, I'm always going to be team grad school. Anytime somebody's like, should I go to grad school? I'm like, if they're paying you go, because <laughs> you just, you learn about yourself as a writer and you learn, and I really believe in revision and you learn in revision and you learn from listening to your community, responding to your work and and I feel like the more you, comfortable you get with, with it and the more you can like throw your ego to the side and just allow for like play, right? Because we're writing plays, we're write, not writing works. It's a play and the more like confidence you build, it just, and at some point you, I think you tap into like what you're doing and who you are and why you write. And, and I think when I tapped into like my intention as a writer and why I'm here and why I am a storyteller and why I am a creator, that was when like kind of the floodgates opened for me. And I was like, Oh, I can write. I, I know how to do this. And some people aren't going to get it and that's okay. And, and I don't think that there's like good 
art and bad art. I feel like there's art for everyone. And the more critics we get who look like me and look like you, the better we all are and the people who, you know, are shaping the conversation about the art. I, so I love what you guys do. I'm such a fan. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> that was word vomit. <laughs> wow. Um, I was going to say that um, early on, I think it helped that I started as a poet for like 10 years. And then I was in performance art for a really long time. So really that was the bulk of my, my career was really perform going around the country and then kind of going around the world. And, you know, with Guillermo Gomez Pena and people like that, you know, so it was very the avant-garde. But I remember the first play I got produced was at the Goodman Theater. I was talking about this the other day in the class. And I said, um, there was a guy named Michael Maggio, who was a, a very important man in Chicago, who used to work at the Goodman. He was a great director. And after the first preview, which was deadly, deadly, like half the audience walked out. And he uh, and we were doing this, and we were across from, I remember, Death of a Salesman with Brian Dennehy, and they were doing great, you know? <laughs> they are, and my production was like a crap, right? And I remember we were outside, and he said, the problem is, I think it's an Irene problem, he said. He said, the Latinos want you to write something Latino, and the white people want you to write something Latino, and you're resisting them. And I don't know why, but I think that if you decide not to, you're going to have a lonely path for a while, and you should be okay with that. And so I kind of thought about it, and I was wedged in, it, I said, between John Leguizamo's Mambo Mouth, you know, that was premiering at the time. And I just thought, hmm, okay, there's a kind of lonely journey that's going to happen. So my first, like, five productions were in black or Asian American companies. So the Latinos took a long time to catch up. And I think they took a while to catch up, not just because of the avant-garde, but because I was queer, so we were dealing with that, right? Like out people. You know, I'd go to a company and they'd say, well, you know, the community's not ready yet. And so I think now it set a wonderful precedent to say that, you know, you have to follow a path. And sometimes it's a lonely path, right? And uh, people catch up. I think of it as people catching up. People catch up to you and your ideas, right? You're, if you're an artist, you're always in the avant-garde. So you're always thinking in the new. And so our job is to not worry so much about that audience, right? I leave that to the theater to do. So when I finally got came around to being loved by Latinos, I was really suspicious of them, right? Because it was also like, hmm, where were you guys when I was really broke in the early 80s, right? But I get it, right? I get that we all evolve, we all change. And I had to change. If I was going to work in the American Regional Theater, I had to change. You know, one of my first bosses was Oscar Eustace, before public, before Trinity Rep, right, it, when he was in L.A. And he was one of those guys who was like, yeah, this one's really weird. This little play of yours is really weird. Like, nobody's going to do it. But I think that was a good thing to know. It was good to have people telling you what was acceptable at the time and what was not. So I think, I think a lot about that. I think a lot about the 10 years that I spent going around the U.S. in really small theater companies. So I was in Boston for a year. And I worked at the Boston Center for the Arts at a company called Theater Offensive. Yeah, they're still around. Yeah, and I lived, I lived right above the Dunkin' Donuts on first in Mass Ave. And, you know, with the leather daddy and, and the head librarian for the city. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> and, but, you know, I have a kind of a story from every city because that was the lonely 
10 years where like, you know, out of the kindness of people letting you stay at their places and lots of beautiful theaters like the theater offensive who were like, we have no money, but come do your place. Those lonely years were the years of the muscle, right? Those were the years of like, okay, I'm getting clear about how to do this. Like, I love how you said, you know, like once you figured it out, you knew you were a writer, you could do this. Yeah, I was getting clear about how to make the work. And that's really, really important. And that's something you want to give to that next generation, you know, the clarity. Yeah. And I also feel like, because I, I, you know, I came to theater as an actor and I was a child actor and I went to school for musical theater and I still act. Um, I mean, obviously not right now. Nobody is acting um, on stage, only over Zoom. Um, So, and you know, why I started writing plays, right, was because I wanted to play meaty roles. I didn't, you know, I always talk about, I was 16 at a big performing arts high school in Miami, and I was doing, like, Harper from Angels in America. Why did anybody let me do that? (laughs) But I wanted to, like, do some serious theater, and, you know, those roles weren't there for young women, especially not, like, Latinas. That just was unheard of, and so I, you know, I started writing mostly as, like, self-preservation, give myself work. And that was kind of part of my high school's big ethos was you should be self-sufficient and and create your own work. And all of my mentors were doing that and producing and acting in their own plays. I think that's always been my favorite part about writing plays is like, I just get to work with all my friends and, you know, the more young women I write roles for, the more young women who get cast. And that's always so exciting. And I, what I love about Drug Lord has been so fun. All of the people who reach out to me and want to do this for their showcase, or I'm working on this in class, and it's like, oh, right, like this is who is like keeping these works alive. It's the actors who love to perform it. And so that's like one of my favorite parts, and then really like connects me to like, you know, on the days where I'm like, ah, why do I do this? It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So when you open like the monologue book, at Barnes and Noble, <laughs> there there are some choices and you have options. Don't you think the actors are great writers too? Yes, yes. There's something about like, and and I think this was like a big moment for everything clicking in my, in my brain where I like stopped trying to compartmentalize my like selves, all of those disparate things. Eventually, I'm like, oh right, because I know how to like act in a play and produce a play. I kind of know what a play should do. So I can actually just write that. (laughs) It took a while, but I got there. You were talking about alchemy earlier. And there is nothing for me, you know, when I go see a show or when I experience the work that a writer has made happen, it's almost like reverse alchemy for me. I'm seeing the trick and, you know, the magic happen. And then I'm lucky enough that because of people like you and other playwrights, there's an entire library where those spells have been saved in a way. And we can go and learn and try to make them happen again. So if I don't sound like a Bruja movie or something again, what is the most magical moment for you as theater makers, as Brujos, as writers, when you see, you know, your spells like happen, like you see your words transform into literal gold? It's so overwhelming (laughs) in the best way, in the best way. I mean, it's scary because it's like, um, 
like I had moments in, in drug lord rehearsal and in tech and then in previews. And then even like the show, I'd like leave for a few months because we were open for a few months. That's crazy. And I would come uh-huh. back and kind of face my own power. Oh, I, I wrote this thing and, and there's stuff happening and everyone is involved and everyone is now complicit in this. And like, like I conjured it, I manifested this. Ah! It's scary in a good way. Excited and scared. Yeah. Just like your characters. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think uh, for me, it's probably uh, first read. You know, that moment of transference when it leaves you, <laughs> it leaves your body. That's always such an interesting moment. I, you know, I work a lot with Che Yu, the director, and he's, I, and I love working with him so much because he's a playwright. So, you know, there's a poet sitting with you, another writer next to you, right? And we work very much, not like director, writer, but we work like, two writers together in the room. That's really the way we work. But there's always that moment, you know, like, and Che's not going to, like, cop to this because he hates this, any sentimentality, but there's always a moment at first read where somebody does something where they get the play in some way, they get something, and then I squeeze Che's hand, and he's like, stop it. (laughs) Beautiful moment where you're like, this is not mine anymore. My, My child is leaving me. Now it's going to be interpreted or translated or channeled, right, in some way. It's not mine anymore. And it's a feeling of relief. It feels like time to change. It's time to move, right? There's something about, too, once a play is open, that's when I start trying to figure out, like, why I wrote the play and what it's saying. (laughs) When I start writing, none of that is really fully formed. And so it's trying to play like catch up or like rewind. And it's that moment like in rehearsal when usually it's always an actor who like so beautifully articulates what you've done and what you're doing and what you're saying in a way that like you've never articulated for yourself. And so it's like meeting yourself again, meeting it's the meeting yourself, um, which I find is like magic, magic. Thank you for that. And now, Plug everything you have going on. Louise, your place just came out and the oh, the Virgen de Guadalupe cover is so stunning. Did you have to like fight to get that? No, it was all a woman in Rosa Andujar, the, the seemingly the only Latina in London. But she was the one who pitched the book, edited the book, uh, and the, the company Methuen was about to you know shut down for the pandemic. And she said, If I can get this all everything in within the month, will you still publish? And they said, Yeah. And she did it all. I mean, she was extraordinary, so I gave all praise to her. Um, I'm doing a kind of interesting thing. The Getty Museum, Getty Villa, and Center Theater Group, one of the reasons why I'm working there is we are recording all three of the Greeks live in L.A. and these new COVID filming guidelines with the filmmaker, and and they'll go up on uh, on YouTube. So I'm super, super excited about that. And I wrote a new play about uh, seminaries. And it's kind of my pandemic play, you know. And so it's all about a sem- actual seminary in the Central Valley, California, where there was closed down by the church, and one of the priests hung himself because he had never been out in the world. He had been cloistered most of his life. So it's all about what happens, you know, in isolation. And writing about isolation has been interesting. You're speaking, speaking my love language right now, like <laughs> ghosts and priests and trauma. Oh, my God. I can't wait. And you can join me. Uh, speakeasy stage, join my book club and we'll read some plays. Um, and what else am I doing? Um, voting, go vote. <laughs> go vote early, please. 
I love that so much. Alexis and Louise, it's always a pleasure, and I hope you keep manifesting magic into this world because we need it for decades and decades and decades. So thank you so much for joining us. What I really loved about the conversation that we had was Louise and I were in California, and you and Alexis were on the East Coast, but through the magic of technology, we could all be together, something that we couldn't do in the live version of this show. Yeah, that's something to be grateful for, right? Like, I mean, we we can talk to people over the world right now. That's kind of fun. But mm-hmm. you have tacos, so you win. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You and Louise win. He was in Koreatown, and, like, they probably had, like, yeah. fusion tacos over there, right? Yeah, they they have Korean Mexican fusion oh. where you can put like bulgogi or kalbi in a taco. It's delicious. Oh, I, bulg- oh God! Okay, stop it now. My, my mouth is watering. So, it's the brainchild of this Korean American whose name I forget, but he runs a taco truck called Kogi, which eventually turned into a storefront. But back in college, we would chase a Kogi truck around Los Angeles because it would park at a different place every night. So you go on the website and, and, you, and you look for where the Kogi truck was parked and you would chase it. So it's kind of like the ice cream truck, but with tacos? Fuck, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> it could come in your neighborhood any night. Not in New York. I only get this stupid I know, not ice cream truck. I don't want Mr. Softy. I want Mr. Taco. So, yeah, th- that's the fun thing about Los Angeles. Everyone has a car and we just go chasing our food. But uh, do you want to tell our <laughs> Patreons why they should be supporting this podcast? Well, so first of all, so you can get better tacos than I can because we're in California right now. But no, all jokes aside. We do this because we love theater and we want to remind people that theater is alive. It's not paused. It's not sleeping. It's definitely not dead. It's alive. There's so many people like who are doing incredible work right now. And we keep getting prompts from all of you listeners and viewers on Twitter and on social media telling us that you want us to cover more things. And we would love to do that. But we don't have jobs. We're both technically very unemployed right now. We don't have like a steady income and we want to be able to do this more often and we want to be able to do this without worrying about how we're going to pay for a rent so if you can become a contributor on patreon that would be a dream because also at some point we would be able to commission more pieces we would be able to do more of the things that you love us for and also we want to hear from you and we're building a community also like all of you are our friends and friends help each other yeah, and if you become a patron on Patreon, you can DM us whenever you want, and we respond. Yes, we do. We're not like yeah. parents. We know how to use social media. Oh, and if you become a Patreon Patreon, every week we give a shout-out to what our patrons are working on. So this week's shout-out is to Diana Burbano, who is gathering monologues for this Zoom play reading series called Breath of Fire from Latina Theater Ensemble in collaboration with Protest Play Project. And they're putting out a call for writers. So we'll have a link to the submission for those monologues and information about the play project and performances on our website. That sounds really awesome. Good for you, Diana. And thank you for being a friend. Yep. And if you like the things that we talk about, uh, visit our website, TokenTheaterFriends.com. We write stuff, and we have bonus content on there. And uh, anything else you want to say to the people? 
stay safe, wear a mask, and if you're in California, have all the tacos for me. And if you're in New York, cry with me because we don't have good tacos. Yep, yep. Uh, speaking of which, my mom's telling me I need to go eat lunch now. So, bye. <laughs> Enjoy your food. Bye. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.